This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are all awaiting the province's announcement on a reopening plan this afternoon. The Ford government has taken a lot of flack for keeping outdoor amenities closed or at least trying to. Uh, I know all kinds of people have been playing tennis and shooting hoops and whatnot. The expectation is those restrictions will be lifted maybe even effective immediately before the long weekend. Also, we learned that the government will not be wasting the AstraZeneca doses in storage, and it looks like they will be released as second doses for people who agree to take them with informed consent. I'm wondering if there's any movement on that. And then uh, about the mixing of vaccines, we just learned about a Canadian clinical trial testing whether that would be safe and effective, though I have to say it sounds like we're a little bit late off the mark on that. So let us start there as I welcome Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Hi, Dr. Uni. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, so what do you think of the fact that we are just now starting a clinical trial on the mixing of vaccines? Well, um, obviously we're not early and uh, we will make all the decisions based on uh, trial data coming from Spain, the UK, and potentially other regions in the world, there may still be questions that need to be asked. So I'm completely open for another trial there. Let's just not expect that it's Canadian data that will help. It doesn't need to be. We, we all behave the same biologically, so all will be okay. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering what the point of it is. And, and their test, they're testing an interval of one month and an interval of four months. And they're not testing an interval of three months, which uh, uh, epidemiologists say certainly is recommended for AstraZeneca and some hypothesize is actually the best for the others. Yeah, well, you know, what we know now is that we have a three-month interval um, that actually worked really nicely. We know that already from the UK. Um, so if we now just generate more data, that's one of the questions that will be really interesting just to look at and just have one month versus four months, there, it allows us actually also to make indirect comparisons. So I'm actually grateful for that part. Let's see what the sweet spot is. What is great is to know now that our original decision in Canada to go for first doses first was absolutely the right decision, not only to protect the population best, but it also just triggers better immune responses, which is great news. There are a lot of people at this point who are arguing that at this point, it makes a lot more sense to give older people who are more at risk, especially people over 80, their second dose rather than starting with with 12-year-old kids. Yeah, and I think that's a fair comment. We need to think about how to handle that best. So first of all, it's also not such a big population and a lot of 80 plus and also 75 plus uh, people out there probably are all already around 10 weeks after their shot or so. So we start to approach the sweet spot anyway, where they just will have an optimized immune response. And what we now just need to find, you know, in the discussions there is indeed just a really good way forward that we just perhaps go for 10 to 12 weeks um, after the uh, first dose that we actually bring the second dose aboard especially for people who now have uh, a decreased uh, immune response already. For people who are at, uh, beyond, above the age of 75 or 80, I'm completely in agreement with that. But, you know, there's the other part, which is we have quite a lot of vaccine doses. And the population, you know, of 12 to 17-year-olds is actually not that big. So let's try to, have, to cover both as much as we can. And I don't think that we need to compromise that much. Well, you know, I'm thinking, you know, some of the calls that I get here are really heartbreaking or, and, and really leave me shaking my head. And one that I remember from last Friday is a woman whose 97-year-old father 
lives at home. And I've heard from other people over 80 who are not costing the system a lot of money because they are still living in their homes. They get some help with home care. The home care will not give them any guarantee that, uh, that the, the people they send in are vaccinated. And meanwhile, they're waiting for their second doses and saying, why, why is a 12 year old or a 16 year old getting it before my 97 year old dad gets oh. shot number two? I completely agree with you with, on that one. So, you know, people need support and the people who live in congregate settings, etc., especially if they are, you know, at an age that makes them at really increased risk, they should get their second dose now really soon, you know, and then we, we probably will be somewhere between eight and 12 weeks. Somewhere in between that will just be okay. I completely agree with that part for sure, Libby. And uh, you're on the science advisory table. Is that something that's being looked at? We actually had conversations and they're currently um, modeling studies going on, uh, you know, led by uh, my colleagues, uh, Sharmista Mishra and Beate Sander, looking into some parts of that. Uh, that's, that's actually true, you know, just to find the sweet spot there. Right now, our notion is that it probably makes sense to go down the road of, of uh, you know, 80, 75 and 70, that we really just try to get second doses into people in these age groups relatively soon. And uh, on the other hand, um, just try to, to, uh, to squeeze in this relatively small population of youngsters between 12 and 17, but also start then to, you know, think about that we get back to uh, essential workers. There will be a lot then also who start to be, you know, between eight and 12 weeks after the first dose. What we want to do is that those who either have a high risk of complication or a high risk of infection for those people who want to seal the deal with the second dose, then if they're at least eight weeks beyond the first dose. So we're currently modeling that to try to find the optimum so that we, again, you know, have a rollout that hopefully gives us as much bang for the buck as last time with the hotspot strategy that actually works out really nicely. In terms of the AstraZeneca, we've heard from the health minister, she's not going to waste the doses. There are apparently forty-five or 50,000 doses uh, sitting around here that will expire soon. We heard from Dr. Teresa Tam that people will be able to make an informed choice if they want a second dose of AstraZeneca. I, I saw an update to the guidance that the risk of a blood clot with a second shot is perhaps a tiny bit higher than one in a million. It's one in 600,000. Do you know of any progress on that? Um, well, if we talk about numbers, I think right now what is probably quite safe to assume is that it's about 8 to 10 times lower the risk after the second dose than after the first. To be honest with you, 1 in 600,000 might be still a bit too rare. It's maybe a bit more frequent. I personally would believe it's more like one in 250 to one in 300,000, but it's considerably less frequent, it appears to be, than, um, than after the first dose. These numbers might go up if we see, you know, more now, especially in the UK, you know, slowly cases accumulating. So what is important here is to realize it's rare. B, and um, people should have a choice. They need to be properly informed about, you know, a rare event, but it's serious if they have it. And if they then are in a position just to say, yes, I uh, understood that it's extremely rare, but it could happen and they still want it. I'm completely okay with that, obviously. But I think it will be important also to give people a choice. Do they want to have AstraZeneca a bit earlier after three months, the second dose, or do they want to wait a few weeks longer and then perhaps we'll also be ready for the second dose of the mRNA vaccine? Mm -hmm. But but those doses uh, are likely to expire before we have the data to decide about mixing vaccines. Am I wrong? Oh, be aware of it's only 50,000 that expire very soon. 50,000 doses, that's very little actually, you know, on a larger scale. I think these doses can be put out there relatively soon and then we just make sure that people are well informed and if they want one, that's great. And if there are spare doses, of course, I also am in violent agreement there, then we should rather give them away if they expire. Hmm. And is the province planning this uh, as far as you know? I wouldn't know for sure. I wouldn't know for sure what's happening there, to be honest with you. 
Okay, so uh, we wait, and uh, I think you've said that you have family members who had their first shot AstraZeneca. Would you tell them to take second shot the same? So uh, it was. It's not the case that they had actually a oh. first shot AstraZeneca. My wife was actually queuing to get it, and when she was at the top of the queue at the beginning of the queue, actually there were no doses left, so she got the Pfizer. Um, would I right now just if she had tolerated had tolerated it well? Uh, ask her to uh, or, or, or advise her to take the second shot. To be honest with you, I don't know. I would like to know a little bit more right now about the uh, the what happens in the UK, considering that Elena, my wife, is really low risk right now. Um, I'm I'm not completely sure about that. If she were working right now as an osteopath and would be exposed to clients, then I would say yes. Okay, and people who are older, because it, as it turns out, uh, most of the people who have the AstraZeneca shot are certainly over 55, over 60, and uh, over 65. Their risk is higher, uh, you know, to have complications than my wife, who is a 47, for example. It depends, again, on the situation they're in, and it also depends a bit on the risk aversity. So, again, remember, one in 250,000, if this is the correct number, one in 300,000, that's extremely rare. You know? That's about, uh, I don't know, uh, do you have the same risk if you travel twice from Toronto to Ottawa and back, you have the same risk to die in a fatal car accident. And hmm. um, so it's very low. So it depends on your take on that and how exposed you feel you are. And depending on that, you would then accept it or not. The important part is just to be properly informed. You understand what this is about. It's not null, but it's very, very rare. If you have it, it's serious. The older you are, the more you might want to take the risk. Because if you have complications from COVID, the risk that you actually just end up on an ICU or in hospital or might also die from it is just higher. Okay, uh, Dr. Uni, 20 seconds. What would you like to leave us with as we head into the long weekend? Um, I think the most important part is just enjoy yourself outside, but do that safe. And to parents, I would say get vaccinated because we want to have our kids back in school. So we need you to be protected. Okay, thank you so much. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the Provinces COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, and have a great long weekend. Yes, you too, Libby. Thank you very much. So, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and of course, that's the day when we'll talk about what you would like to talk about, and uh, we'll see what that is heading into the long weekend. If we couldn't take your call, call back then. If you want to talk about something else, call back then. And I am out of time for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's National Road Safety Week, and we're learning that vehicle speed limits may be reduced to 30 kilometers an hour for certain neighborhoods. In Toronto, we're talking about Parkdale High Park. We're talking about the Ward of Davenport and the beaches East York. Now, if this goes through and it's before those community councils, it means that it would effectively complete the reduction of speed limits on all local roads in Toronto and the East York Community Council areas to 30. It's all part of Vision Zero. Um, I would like more of a handle on exactly what is a local road, what is not a local road. Uh, and if you have questions and if you think that we need to slow down, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we have a road safety panel. Let's go to Police Constable Sean Shapiro of Toronto Police Safety Traffic Programs, Brian Patterson, President and CEO of the Ontario Safety League, and Dylan Reed, co-founder of Walk Toronto. Hello, and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Uh, Hello, thank you. Let's begin with Constable Sean Shapiro. So this is not quite a done deal yet, but how have the 30-kilometer limits been working out uh, in the places where they are already in place? Well, we, we, you know, the, the reason for these is to 
really reduce those serious injury or death collisions. And we've seen a reduction this year. In fact, uh, we've had six deaths on our roads this year. And year to date, uh, uh, and last year, comparing it, we had 11. So we're seeing benefits. Right. But isn't whatever reduction we have due to lockdowns and not due to anything else? Well, it's hard to say if, if that's the reason or not. We're still seeing a lot of uh, volume on our roads. We're still seeing people who are going beyond the speed limit. Sorry, our tickets are up. So we're still doing enforcement. Uh, so I wouldn't attribute it simply to lockdown. Uh, Brian Patterson, what's your take on it? Well, I think we've got a little bit of a combination. I, uh, uh, you know, I, I believe the big three E's... Uh, engineering enforcement and uh, education are the key uh, and I think sometimes uh, particularly with the uh, community councils that you want to get more uh, more of the education and more of the engineering and not just the uh, local councillors I think uh, for many years speed bumps were the crack cocaine of local councillors getting them in on roadways they weren't required and adding other problems for other drivers uh, so what do you mean by engineering exactly? Oh, well, we've got some very, very good standards in Canada, and we've got some very good civil engineers and universities, et cetera, that have been helping get these studies uh, organized. So often there is a national standard to determine various things, whether it's the volume of the roadway uh, classifies it in one category, the width, the proximity to stop signs. There's a lot of really good smart guy engineering going on there. And I think we should rely on them more than simply a bumper sticker approach that uh, uh, often comes up uh, when people are on a roadway that might be a, a main artery and has been a main artery for many, many years. So the speed is not uh, just in play. And then we can have a year like the last two years Whereas, as, as you uh, mentioned, Libby, some of the stats, it's hard to tell whether they're COVID reduction of volume or COVID increase in, uh, in uh, bad driving habits that take place on uh, less congested roadways. Okay, Dylan Reed, what's your take? First, um, I mean, we're just talking local roads here. Um, and the city did do a study, and they showed that the speed limit reductions did actually reduce the average speeds that people were driving. So they do have some effect. And the, the reason we start with this is because it's quick and cheap. I mean, engineering is definitely something that we need, um, but that costs money. It costs money to rebuild roads. Um, they only rebuild occasionally. So the idea of the speed reductions is to get something going now. Um, and like I said, it turns out it does actually work. And I think the key thing to remember with 30 kilometers an hour is that on a local road where, you know, people, kids might be playing or people might be crossing kind of casually, um, 30 kilometers an hour, most people don't get killed if they're hit by a car. Um, but once you go up to 40, you get about half people are hit by a car. And once you go up to 50, most people are going to be killed if they're hit by a car. So the point of 30 kilometers an hour is really that it's something where even if there is an accident, and this goes to what um, uh, Constable was saying, um, people are not going to get killed. Um, and, uh, of course, also people going 30 kilometers an hour, they have a shorter stopping distance, so they're less likely to hit people in the first place. Um, so that's really the, the core goal. And, uh, you know, that's the first thing we need to do. And then we, enforcement and engineering are something we can follow up with to really uh, reinforce that change. Okay, I'm going to take a call from David in Oakville. Hello, David. Hey, Libby. Um, yeah, my comment is this. is uh, you know, just in the last year because of COVID, I ended up having to uh, become a school bus driver. Um, and one of the things that uh, they do, obviously, is through that training, it, it really opens your eyes, you know, to, to driving in mind. You have to give yourself lots of time in order to um, lower the chance of, uh, of, of having an accident and being able to stop on time, etc. And I think that fundamentally that I, I do like the idea of lowering those speed limits. But I think what's got to happen is I think we all just need to go back to school. And I think that the, uh, the driving tests, um, even for old guys like me, we need to go back to school and take them on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, because there just needs to be an attitude adjustment. Um, people don't understand that if you're driving 30K in a parking lot, you've got no chance of stopping and you're going to hurt somebody. Um, but everybody does it because it doesn't feel when you're sitting in a modern car, you have no idea how fast 30K is. Yeah. 
Okay, David, thank you for that. Interesting. Uh, and I have to say that I think that in the last year of lockdown, I have seen on a regular basis very uh, unsettling driving behaviors. Part of it maybe is education. When you're at a four-way stop, people jump the gun. Uh, things like that. Uh, Constable Shapiro, uh, has there been an increase in that? Or do you get a feeling that perhaps more people aren't aware or don't care about the rules of the road? Well, we can certainly attribute certain things to frustration, but I I think moreover, uh, there has been uh, a a feeling or or a surge in in poor behavior. And we've seen that in terms of uh, charges of stunt driving and things of that nature, uh, where people are, I suppose, getting their thrills in other ways. In terms of just being uh, less courteous on the road, I don't think that's that's a, a situation so much as uh, we're all going through this, and it's affecting people differently. But going specifically to poor driving behavior, uh, yeah, there's been a tremendous increase in certain behaviors, uh, speed being one of them, stunt, uh, stunt driving. We've seen a tremendous increase. Uh, so that's uh, where our Vision Zero enforcement team has been uh, doing great work, going into specific areas and doing enforcement. But we've also done a lot of outreach in terms of education and uh, using social media through our, uh, I suppose, new ways pivoting to to accommodate uh, the lockdown and the fact that we can't see people in person is easily. Brian Patterson, uh, um, we just uh, started talking about uh, stunt driving and there was this horrible, horrible collision uh, up, up in Vaughan where these two children were killed in their own driveway by a 16-year-old driver driving way too fast. Uh, I guess... The question is, how do you stop that? Because changing the speed limit wouldn't change that, I don't think. No, I think, uh, I, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, you have to stick with the three uh, fundamentals, uh, the, the costliness or lack thereof uh, uh, for other projects. Uh, the reality is uh, um, people believe they can get away with these offenses. Because we've got, in many cases, the police are a little bit overwhelmed in communities. Um, uh, the constable will probably agree with me. The majority of people ticketed in a community live in that community. So the people that you see as your, uh, uh, I have a four-way stop near my house. Uh, the people that the uh, York Regional Police have pulled over and are issuing tickets to probably live right within the subdivision that I live in. So that's uh, uh, awkward. We have to... We have to look at people that uh, have to be retrained, as the caller mentioned. And I think uh, 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 we've got to stop treating the courts as a sort of a uh, 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 playground for paralegals. So you get an actual ticket. The police do an excellent job now with uh, car cams and integrated uh, digital data. So when you're uh, when you're in court, you're uh, you're a bona fide. Uh, uh, evidence uh, uh, player, and now we're going to have a backlog from COVID. We're going to have uh, reductions uh, every day in this province. We've got critical, uh, life-threatening impaired drivers being reduced to uh, careless driving to somehow move it along in the courts. So the attorney general has to finally be accountable for the way he's managing courts in related in relation to traffic tickets. And at the other end of the scale, municipalities have to get off the fact that they want to collect the fee for the incident. Uh, uh, I think it would be far better to have somebody retrained uh, who's uh, been involved in a four-way stop uh, or running stoplights, uh, bad local behavior uh, at the lower risk end and uh, have them get retraining then to simply uh, keep cashing fine tickets and sending them to the municipality. Well, you know, funny you mentioned that. Where I exit the street where I live, there's a three-way stop. And the people in the other two parts of it rarely stop. And if you, it depends where, if I'm leaving my street, I can at least see. But if I'm coming back home, you can't really see what's coming around the corner. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, if if those things were enforced, you know, that would be a 
a, a good source of revenue, but I'm sure that there are a lot of very similar stop signs that people just ignore. Uh, Constable Shapiro, do you find that a problem? Well, certainly we can't be everywhere, and we'd like to be. That's where these automated speed enforcement cameras and stoplight cameras come in very handy. Um, that being said, we can't take it our way out of these problems. It's a complex situation. What we are trying to do is to engage and educate, to try and come from another angle and, and hope to get the buy-in. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's, there should be some, uh, some re-education uh, available, and we're trying to do that through uh, social media and such. Uh, Dylan Reed, how does this affect people trying to walk? Well, I mean, it makes it makes things really difficult. Obviously, um, uh, um, you know, I think we've all been walking a lot more now with the. Uh, sorry, am I getting an echo? No, um, you're fine. Okay, we're we're all we're all walking a lot more now with the pandemic, and I think people become start to realize how dangerous uh, our streets can be. Um, but that's really the reason to do these kinds of speed limit reductions is to at least make our neighborhoods safer. Um, and I totally agree with the idea that uh, of reeducating people. Um, I think that that actually might be a bigger deterrent than fines for a lot of drivers, thinking they have to go back to school if they get caught um, breaking breaking basic driving laws. Um, and goodness knows we all see many cases of people who really could go go back to school and benefit from education. I'm going to take a call from Bill in Toronto. Bill, you want to complain about bike lanes, I know, but what about lowering speed limits? Is that going to help? Well, you know, you guys have got me afraid. You're talking about uh, uh, drunk drivers and stunt driving and re-educating people. Um, I look at this. I, I live the Woodbine bike lane experience every day. It's done nothing but just create a, a snake line of cars. And if somebody's making a left-hand turn, it shuts down traffic in, in, say, the southbound direction for maybe 30 seconds up to a minute, just plugs everything up. So they put all these stop signs now on the side street to stop people, you know, to discourage them from taking the side street, and they just ignore them. They paint the roads. This is nothing more than a make-work project for the city of Toronto and harassing drivers. Okay, who wants to respond to that? Thanks, Bill. Uh, don't all jump at once. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's a make-work project. by. Okay, whoever that is, I'm losing you. Is that Brian? Yep. Go ahead. Yeah, no, we've got... Uh, I don't think it's a make-work project, but, uh, but often... It's, uh, uh, it's a project where some of the engineering didn't seem to be listened to. Um, I think of that with the, uh, the scramble intersection at Dundas that was announced as one of the world-changing uh, pedestrian intersections. It backed traffic up in every direction uh, and uh, led to uh, lots of confusion for drivers uh, and uh, pedestrians not sure who had the, uh, the, the right to go. So I think... Uh, uh, again, as I say, you get the engineers involved. Uh, sometimes there's some communities just have way too many stop signs uh, because they're, uh, they're, they're set up uh, uh, at every intersection. Uh, and then you've got other intersections that I'm sure Hospital Shapiro knows more than three of them where they haven't put the proper stop and yield signs in. And as a result, people feel they've got a strip uh, of, uh, you know, 500, 1,000 yards that they can just let go and uh, they're not going to have to stop. So I think we've got to work on, uh, on, on both ends of that, uh, that pie. But uh, if we looked at each ward in the, like the city of Toronto, we looked at each ward every three years uh, with, uh, with a series of engineering projects to be undertaken, and they did the proper studies and then made the changes, we'd be a lot better off than trying to do blanket changes uh, on the eve of an election. Well, I th I think just I just want to jump in here. I think Bill has a point about left-hand turns. So there are a lot of streets where the right-hand lane is is pretty well. It's either got a bike lane or parking or both. So it's basically blocked. Uh that and uh there's no advance uh arrow on the left turn, which is legal and uh, he's right. If somebody wants to turn left, it just 
backs up the traffic and makes people really annoyed. Constable Shapiro? Yeah, I, I can totally understand the frustration for drivers. I understand, the, on the other hand, the frustration and the desire for safety for vulnerable road users like cyclists and pedestrians. So it's finding that happy medium where we can move people through the city safely uh, while protecting those people who are so vulnerable. And uh, there's a cost to it. So if it means that things take a little longer, uh, that that's worthy of saving lives. So uh, the best advice that I've got for, for most drivers in most situations is leave early. Expect that things are going to take a little longer because we've changed the way the traffic moves. And with that, your timing isn't going to be the same. Can I just go uh, ahead say it and, and, and say thumbs up to that um, statement? I mean, for example, the, the um, Dundas Young scramble, the reason that's there is that actually the number of pedestrians crossing at that location is far more than the number of people and cars going through. So it kind of makes sense to put pedestrians uh, priority. And in fact, the pedestrians were spilling out on the street before they put in that scramble. So, I mean, you have to think about pedestrians and cyclists as also people who are using the road and, and need some protection and safety. Um, and like the constable was saying, we need to find that balance um, so everyone can move, but maybe not everyone gets to move as quickly. Um, and that's the, that's the way it is in, you know, a crowded city like Toronto. Uh, well, I think that the kind of congestion certainly that we had before the pandemic is something that we absolutely don't want to see return. And it's very bad for the economy. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it doesn't have any kind of use at all. Brian Patterson, I mean, just saying that that's the way it is, you know, our civic leaders have said they're going to try to deal with the congestion. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, um, um, I do a fair amount of running around, as you know, Libby used to run down to the studio to do a call like this. And uh, at the end of the day, I, like I'm finding, uh, I'm sort of startled uh, at how much less traffic uh, I'm seeing in the downtown core uh, and in the uh, on the 404 and those uh, those opportunities. So at the at the end of the day, I think we've got an opportunity uh, as we start to see people back in that we look at it. But you know, I I think to your point about uh, creating a left hand blockage point without any consideration is an incomplete engineering uh, uh, solution got, uh, you know, got jammed in there. Uh, uh, so I think, uh, uh, I, I know Wellesley for me, I, you know, I go to Queen's Park quite often, and there's a couple of bike lanes there where they, they have to do something to make them safer for the cyclists because people are just so frustrated that they pull into the bike lane to make their, uh, uh, their right-hand turn regardless uh, of uh, looking or checking uh, because they've waited three cycles for the light just to get up to that small gap in the in the bike lane to jump in, which they're not supposed to do. So well, let's get uh, let's get some of the engineering fixed rather than do it incomplete and then live with it for four or five years. I know that when I'm on a north south street, uh, I have to pull partly into the the it's a bike lane parking, and you have to pull into it partly just to see. You can't see uh, if if you're not there. I mean, it's, some of these designs are really very difficult. We don't have too much time left. There seems to be also confusion. What's an arterial road? What's not an arterial road? So in Davenport, for instance, uh, St. Clair obviously is an arterial road. Bloor is. What about the north-south roads uh, Ossington and Dovercourt, uh, streets like that that are pretty well traveled. Uh, what are the rules for them? Um, so- my understanding is that those are minor arterial roads, so they they wouldn't be affected by these um, this this uh, speed speed limit reduction. Uh, um, Constable Shapiro, is that right? That's my understanding as well, but uh, it'll all come out in the, whatever's finally approved. We'll, we'll know the details, but my understanding is it's mostly side roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, again, and the other thing that I saw that also gave me pause is that uh, you wouldn't necessarily have to have a sign with the speed limit on every part of the street, that it just uh, right. there would be one in the area. Now, uh, is, is that smart? 
So the, the trick is that um, it's basically at the entrance to the area. So when you're coming into the area, you can see the speed limit. But then this way they don't have to put a sign on, like, every single block. Um, it's basically when you're going in. So anytime there's a change in the speed limit, there's a sign. Okay. Um, Brian Patterson, is that a good idea? I, I think we gotta, we've got to look at that. I, I was at a conference uh, and uh, in Europe. You can tell what kind of road you're on and what kind of speed you're on, you're allowed to do, uh, because it's embedded in the uh, both in the roadway and the size of the roadway, etc. So you couldn't get a uh, you know a five lane uh, roadway that has a uh, thirty kilometer or forty kilometer speed limit allowed on it, so that people know if I'm on if there's two lanes, uh, I have a speed I need. So uh, the the signage is more. Uh, Highway Traffic Act rules than it is reminding people how to drive, uh, uh, what speeds are on. But uh, I'm sure the constable will tell you as well, you could be sitting, you could have passed nine signs with a, a cruiser with its lights flashing behind you, and when you get pulled over, the, the driver doesn't know what the speed limit is and is shocked to find he's been in trouble. Uh, people are oblivious when they're driving at times, and we have to uh, sort them out as well. Okay, on that note, we're going to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Dylan Reed, Brian Patterson, and Constable Sean Shapiro. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to take another break. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. When we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Peter Uni, who is with the Science Advisory Table. We're waiting for new Rules and there are a pile of other COVID-related developments that we should know about when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. There's some good news for patients whose lives have been on hold while they've been waiting for elective surgery. Surgery that the province cancelled a month ago. Elective in this context means not urgently life-threatening, and it includes cancer and heart surgery, among many others. Now, these procedures won't start up again everywhere. It will depend on each hospital's capacity and it will be limited to certain types of operations. Here's Health Minister Christine Elliott. We'll be able to start with the ambulatory procedures and day procedures as soon as as now in some hospitals, as long as they're able to follow the guidelines and rules set out by Ontario Health. That is very good news, and we know that people are anxious to have their surgeries done or procedures done, and we are going to move through them as quickly as possible. Well, the big question is, what will this do to the backlog, which has already surpassed 250,000 procedures. Now, this reversal came just over a week after Dr. Robert Nam had an editorial in The Globe and Mail arguing that it made no sense to cancel this type of day surgery. He's a professor of surgery at the University of Toronto, specializes in uh, surgical treatments for patients with urologic cancer, and he is affiliated with Sunnybrook. Dr. Nam joins me now. Hello, how are you? Oh, very uh, very good. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. So uh, it, it looks like uh, maybe they were listening to you. Well, you know, you never know. I hope uh, the, the op-ed did, make, did have some impact. Uh, I'm certainly welcome the news of letting us proceed with ambulatory surgery, but, you know, it still hasn't, uh, he hasn't taken the pressure completely off uh, our, our, our needs. It would be great if we could uh, do surgeries that required inpatient beds, but not the ICU. Uh, and that would tremendously help the backlog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when you're talking about day surgery, you still need the, you know, a few hours to recover, right? It's just not an overnight bed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are some hospitals, uh, like at Sunnybrook, where we do have what we call overnight beds or what we call short-stay units, which are not part of the inpatient unit where a COVID patient or a, a very ill patient would require. And uh, that's certainly something that I hope we could uh, use and other hospitals could utilize in that regard. So it does free up 
our ability to offer cancer surgery and non-cancer surgery to these patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, How many procedures? Do you have any kind of handle on that? Well, you know, it, it, I, I don't, uh, to uh, answer the question directly, uh, but uh, it all depends on uh, the specialty and the needs. Like, for example, cancer surgery, I would say at least more than half can be done on an ambulatory basis, but I couldn't give you uh, some uh, real numbers on that. Well, I mean, I have to say on on a personal note, I remember um, years ago when I had a lumpectomy, I mean, I went, I went home and cooked dinner. Yes, absolutely. And and this is another point I made with the op-ed. We've been working for decades to try and improve efficiencies and improve how we do the surgery so that patients can recover much more quickly and don't need a hospital bed. Because certainly it's better to recover at home than it's, uh, than it is to recover in the hospital. And rightly or wrongly, you know, uh, due to budgetary restraints that the hospitals always have due to budget cuts, we're always making efficiencies and using better techniques. And so I really think that we can really get through this backlog uh, as soon as, as they sort of release the, uh, the dam, if you will, of letting us do surgery. Now, it, it sounded like there would be a lot of discretion where each hospital could decide for itself what it can resume. Is that your take on it? Yes, absolutely. And, it, uh, you know, every uh, sort of LIN, the hospital district, it has different pressures and different burdens of COVID rates. And so each, I think each hospital uh, has, has uh, the, uh, more than enough uh, ability, capacity to determine what they can do and what they can't do, uh, what they can send out and not send out. So, uh, you know, again, it goes back to annual uh, budgets and cutbacks. They've been doing such a good job of, of dealing with the, these types of pressures I think uh, letting uh, the hospitals try and manage it on their uh, on their own abilities would be really important, rather than having the province sort of just do a broad based sort of policy like we've seen in the past. You deal with urologic cancer, so what would some of the procedures that you haven't been able to perform be? Well, I'll tell you one of the main procedures that I really haven't been able to perform is uh, prostate removal surgery. And that only requires an overnight stay. It doesn't require an inpatient bed. Now, some prostate cancers are very urgent and life-threatening, and uh, the hospital has certainly allowed me to do those. Uh, But a large majority of patients have ticking time bombs of prostate cancer. They're not necessarily uh, uh, life-threatening within the next 30 to 60 days, if you will. And so uh, this will allow me to now offer prostate surgery to many patients who have been waiting for so long for their prostate surgery. Another one is a type of surgery where they have uh, bladder cancer uh, uh, and we can't sort of a, uh, make a diagnosis without removing a sample of their bladder. And uh, now they don't need to stay in hospital at all. We can do this as ambulatory surgery. And there's a big backlog of this type of procedure. Well, is that a biopsy? Well, it's a biopsy, but it does require an anesthetic. It requires an ambulatory procedure, uh, and the patient needs to go to sleep in order to tolerate the biopsy. Certainly, there have been many biopsies that can be done without uh, anesthesia, and that's been ongoing. So the hospitals have been able to carry that out, uh, despite the uh, that's separate from the lockdown. Uh, but uh, there are other uh, life-urgent procedures that need uh, anesthetic for these types of biopsies. Okay, let me give the numbers out again. I really would like to hear from people in our audience if they or family members or people they know have had surgeries like this postponed. We've heard from a few people who have been undergoing cancer treatment in the middle of all this. It is very stressful, very difficult, and a lot of things have been delayed, put off, canceled. So I'd like their reaction to this and also uh, tell us a bit about what they have been growing through the numbers 416 excuse me 3600740 toll free 18667404740 i'm talking to dr robert nam he was actually on just a week ago when he had an editorial an op-ed piece published in the globe and mail arguing that these types of day surgeries it made no sense to cancel them and now we see they are being resumed. And and Dr. Nam, 
any kind of surgery is usually preceded by uh, a lot of diagnostic tests, and those have been postponed as well. Uh, where are you at on that, you think? Well, you know, uh, I think a lot, uh, we've, we, all the hospitals have been able to uh, perform and conduct these types of diagnostic tests, like a CAT scan, for example, or an MRI. Um, but unfortunately, uh, they've been cut back, and that's due to redeploying the people uh, to the COVID units, and these involve technicians and nurses and various things. So the availability of and the flexibility of getting these tests have been reduced. And as such, it's becoming uh, patients are waiting longer to have these tests done. And that just, again, con- contributes to the backlog and it could delay a diagnosis. It can delay the cancer from being treated on in a timely fashion. And it just, uh, everything propagates from there. The opposition was suggesting, and we know that studies have shown that that people are basically dying on these wait lists. Have you had any experience of that or of a cancer worsening going from, uh, you know, a more manageable situation to a much less manageable one? Um, you know, I hate to say this, but yes, I've, I've experienced patients where the cancer that we thought that we could treat right away and get out and, and, and the cancer would be contained Due to the delay, they come to the operating room and the cancer has exploded. And the cancer has moved on to other areas where now it, uh, it's a much more advanced. The surgery is much more involved. And then, unfortunately, they have to stay in hospital longer. And, in fact, the patient now needs to go to the ICU to get their post-operative care because the surgery that was planned ended up to be a much larger operation than uh, what was expected. And uh, that's just, uh, unfortunately, all due to all the delays that has been happening. It's just, it's just very tragic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're talking about clearing the backlog. Uh, some people have suggested that, at best, this will just mean that the backlog doesn't get bigger. Right now, it's slated at a, a, something around a quarter of a million procedures, but the uh, financial accountability officer said by September it would be over 400,000. Yeah, you know, they could, they could release the direct, they could uh, uh, sort of remove that directive uh, uh, of canceling elective surgery, but if they don't provide support in terms of increased funding to uh, hire more people, which can't be done right away, of course, uh, to offer more resources so that hospitals can open up more operating rooms, that backlog ain't just going to disappear anytime soon. Uh, but I have real faith in our, our, our hospitals. I have real faith in our doctors and nurses. And I think they'll be able to, uh, again, find more efficiencies, do things faster, do things quicker to try and improve the lives of Ontarians. Are, are you, um, I mean, when, is, is there some kind of management or board meeting? Have you had any kind of uh, a sense of, of when you can put some of the procedures that you've canceled back on the calendar? Uh, no, I, I mean, there's nothing uh, um, sort of uh, on the horizon to my knowledge. Of course, these meetings are going on at Sunnybrook. Of course, they're going to, on at every hospital in Ontario. And uh, the hospital administration work closely with the administrative or the physician chiefs of the departments, and uh, uh, they're working out plans to do this. I have every confidence that they'll be able to achieve this. The question is, how much and how long? And that's the big question mark. And what they need, they'll need a big injection from the Ford government in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was money allocated in the last budget. It was uh, something like uh, $600 million. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be only a drop in the bucket, though, because of such a backlog of, of having to catch up. And you have to remember, this is just cancer surgery. We have to remember that there's, there's non-cancer surgery that's just as urgent. I've been speaking to colleagues, uh, orthopedic surgeons, for example, where their patients suffer from chronic pain, really bad pain, needing hip and knee surgery. And we just read that uh, the uh, number of opioid-related dose uh, deaths have been increasing during the pandemic. And how many more patients do, need, do we need to become dependent on opioids because of their chronic pain from ailments that could be potentially fixed from surgery? 
So it's just on and on in terms of the potential problems uh, out there uh, that we're going to continue to face. Do you have a sense from colleagues? What about heart surgeries and procedures? Oh, absolutely. That's another bucket of worms. I mean, but the problem with heart surgery itself is that they need ICU capacity. Patients uh, going after, uh, needing bypass surgery, for example, need to recover in what's called the cardiovascular intensive care unit. And that, unfortunately, is not readily available due to the COVID crisis. So that's going to take a much longer fix. That's going to take a much longer time to address. What about heart procedures like an angioplasty? That would be a day procedure. Yes, uh, and and these types of procedures don't necessarily require full anesthetic support. They're not done in the operating room, so it's not considered, quote-unquote, elective surgery. So I believe, and I don't know this for 100% because that's not my area, but the hospitals in Ontario are still able to provide that support, especially in the emergent and acute setting. Let's take a call from Darko in Etobicoke. Hello, Darko. Yeah, I have a question. I, I know, like, we've always had backlogs in surgeries. I, I mean, a lot of people wait for hips for, I don't know, five, six months, knee operations, all that kind of stuff. But we've been locked down for 14 months, and I think about maybe a, a 12 months of that, we've actually had cancellation of non-elective surgeries, especially in the GTA. So where does the three and a half years of backlog come from? Uh, and, you know... That's a great question. Uh, the short answer is I don't know. I mean, I'm, when you calculate the numbers, I'm sure the estimate of patients waiting for hip and knee surgery prior to the pandemic and the lockdown was much higher. And when yeah. they looked at the actual counts, they realized, oh, my goodness, this is the actual number. And then you have, I mean, the, the need for it isn't going to stop, right? New patients? Oh, absolutely not. It's only going to get worse as, as the population ages. Um, I hope that answered your question, Darko. Uh, yeah, because uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis need all these things. Uh, Dr. Nam, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I just hope that uh, Dr. Williams and his team realize that a lot of procedures can be done without putting impact on the ICUs. And it's really the ICUs that are critical. And although the numbers uh, our I- of ICU beds are decreasing, uh, that's COVID-related, you know, hospital admission rates are dropping at a much faster rate. Uh, and I would hope that they consider allowing the hospitals to do what they do best, to manage their resources, including inpatients, including the ambulatory surgeries, so that we can really attack this growing wait list. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Robert Nam. We appreciate your time. Absolutely, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, you're going to have to slow down, it looks like, on a lot of streets in Toronto. Uh, Community councils are considering lowering lowering speed limits to 30 from 40. Uh, You know, I have to say that when I drive in, I see a lot of very uh, aggressive and... uh, not right. Uh, driving behavior on the road, is that going to make things better? It's all part of that vision zero that, uh, frankly, has not been working that well here. We'll talk about that when we return. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.